Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us, whether you're here in person or listening over the internet in our live stream. We're going to catch us later on in the week or the month in a podcast. We are delighted that you have found a way to connect with us and through that, hopefully, to engage uh, with God. Uh, let me pray for us before we dive into the rest of our stuff for this morning. God, I give you great thanks this morning. Um, that, that, that we read about in Scripture that you are like a mother, a mother hen. God, that you have understanding that we, all of us, male and female, created in your image. God, and you know what it's like to go through the things that we go through and to feel the things that we feel. And so I pray this morning that everyone, and specifically women and moms, and, and, but, but would find special connection with you, special understanding with you, that you know what it's like. And that from there, we would find intimacy with you, and then we would be transformed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been in a, a shorter series, a four-week series called Flourish, uh, and this is the third week of that, and we have been talking about what it means to flourish. And we identified flourishing with this word shalom. It's a Hebrew word. And when Rich described it early on, it had all these amazing words attached to it to kind of give it its, its sort of robust meaning. And they were things like harmonious, well-being, kind of purpose. And, and it's really everything being right, everything being the way it should be. And that that is God's intent for not just humanity, but for all of creation, that everything that God created would flourish. And that's what this series has been about. Last week, we took a look at what I called the foundation of flourishing. And there were three things. There was identity, there was belonging, and there was purpose. And we talked about identity being that we are all image bearers of God, and that God desires that all people would know him and live out to the fullest their nature as image bearers. We talked about belonging, that when we realize that we're all image bearers, that we're kind of all in this together. And we see that Jesus created, facilitated, and experienced this sense of belonging himself as he became a human being, was born one of us, lived a life where he fell down, scraped his knee, probably burped at the dinner table, all kinds of stuff that we always go, no, no. You know, I was even talking with Ben the other day about, what if Jesus had irritating habits that I, didn't, I wouldn't like, <laughs> right? And he probably did, right? That he's just one of those people that sometimes might rub someone the wrong way. But he became one of us to, to that extent so that we could experience belonging, but also we talked about how in the book of Hebrews it talked about how Jesus stands amongst his people and says, I stand with my brothers and sisters and I praise God together with them. So he experienced belonging also. And then we talked about purpose, that when we live out this identity as image bearers and in doing so we participate in God's work of reconciling all things to himself, his desire, his dream, that everyone would realize that they are one of his image bearers. And that that gives us meaning. And that all of these are connected and necessary for flourishing to happen. In fact, many scholars and theologians would say that these three things are the things that hold culture together and help society function. Well, so why then, at the end of last week, 
would I say that in order to really flourish, these things would need to be destroyed? And I have two reasons. One, because it's a catchy kind of hook, right? It's kind of a cliffhanger. Maybe it's like, oh, I wonder what he's going to say. But the second is that I believe it's true because when we look at what it means to be a human being, if we look at our whole person, kind of like you would look at an iceberg and you have the little bit that's up above the surface of the water and the rest of it that's down deep. If you would kind of keep that image in your head and if you can see the part that's above the water and I want to call that our ego. And what I mean by that is who we think we are in any given moment. And that everything below the water is what I'm going to call our deep, deep self. It's kind of beyond ego. Right? So we've got the top, who we think we are in any given moment. But that might not be who we actually really are. It might just be how I want to feel in that moment. It might be how I kind of perceive myself in that moment. But there might be other things going on in me that are different. Have you ever been in a discussion, I know none of you have done this, or an argument or debate, and believed with all your might that you were correct? And maybe even in your thinking you were correct, not only did you think you were correct, but you thought you were good. Maybe you even thought you were righteous, but then found out that you weren't. Found out that maybe in what you were saying, maybe the content of what you were saying wasn't correct, but maybe the way you were behaving wasn't righteous, wasn't great. And so I want to ask the question today, is it possible that identity, belonging, and purpose can become blocks, can become a hindrance to flourishing? And I would say in a very loud, resounding yes, that it is true, but how? Well, it's because identity and belonging or purpose feel really good, and we get really comfortable there. It happens at school, in our jobs, our relationships, through social media, when we're out shopping, all kinds of things. Because when we believe we know who we are, and we've found belonging and purpose, it's really natural to want to settle there. It feels good to be known and accepted and loved and confident in who you are, that all feels great and is all really necessary to some degree. But it can also work to shore up our ego, that, that who we are in any given moment. And what can happen is if we let that part of us drive, then we can begin to get stuck. Richard Rohr, uh, uh, kind of a spirituality guy, um, he says this. He says, you know when the ego is in front and center because it is afraid of otherness. It sees others as a threat. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, maybe you were helping contribute to something at work, right? maybe a business meeting or a planning session or something, and you have a lot of really great ideas and you share some of those ideas. You're really excited about it. People seem really excited. And then someone else, one of your coworkers, shares some of their ideas, and everyone gets really excited about those ideas. And you kind of feel yourself going, yeah, okay, those are good, but now I'm really working, maybe even harder than I worked on my own ideas to kind of make sure, okay, is that everything in line there? And, oh, I don't know about that. And maybe we get a little defensive. Well, well, my ideas were really good. Maybe we start to feel like, well, they had a really good way of, of describing their ideas. It's not necessarily their ideas are better, but, but they had a really good way. And maybe we even see them as manipulative. It can happen in a school project. 
Planning a party with friends or family can happen when you're playing sports. Again, engaging with social media. Not that it's ever happened to me, but maybe when I'm driving, I get some of these ideas about other people. But it's not just limited to individuals, is it? It can apply to groups. In our world, it applies to races, religions, conservatives, liberals, fundamentalists. We have all kinds of names we like to give people because we like to be right about how we think we understand people. And when we live primarily, rigidly, and comfortably stuck in this space where our ego is driving and we are fearful of otherness, we isolate ourselves toward people, activities, and structures that reinforce and further isolate us. And when we do that, other people do that, and society becomes increasingly narcissistic and fractured. And I think we can just look around today and see that this is happening. But again, it's hard because it makes sense because it feels great to be known and to have people really like you and, and to fit in. It gives you purpose because our ego really wants to feel at home. We want to know who we are. We want to know that we're accepted, and we want to be in places and with people that help reinforce that. And what happens then is, again, we get stuck, and when our ego gets threatened, just like when we physically get threatened, we have a flight, fight, or freeze response. It's an instinctual response. When our body feels threatened, something kicks in, and we either freeze up, we fight, or we get out. Internally, we have a similar system. And when our ego feels threatened, we do one of those three things. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before. It's from a book I read, and, 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 but it, it fits really well, so, so bear with me here. There was a, a mom who um, uh, viewed her son. She had one son. Uh, he was a teenager, just gotten his driver's license, and was kind of struggling, and, and viewed him as rebellious, uh, referred to him as a delinquent, um, and he asked to borrow the car. And she said, sure, but you have to be home by 10.30. Now, for him, that was a pretty early curfew. It was going to be tough. It was going to kind of cut his night short. So, and she even said, it was my way of kind of sticking it to him, like, I'm going to make this hard for you. If you want to borrow the car, you really got to show me that you can do this. And so he said, okay, okay, took the car, 1029 rolls into the driveway like 1029.59 is entering the door. The mom said, she said, my response to him in that moment was, wow, typical. That was cutting it close, wasn't it? Didn't say, good job. You actually did what I asked you because she didn't want to be wrong about how she understood him. Right? It was so ingrained in her that I have to be right about this, that I can't. And it's true, there were probably lots of other moments where she was like, all these things came up, and you know what? That was cutting it close. Doesn't mean it's not true. It was cutting it close. But we don't realize how deeply ingrained it is in us to try to be right, to try to solidify those things and organize people into ways that they fit for us. I could hear it in you when I told that story, and you all were like, oh, oh. Right, But how often do we do the same thing? Because when we allow someone else to redefine themselves, redefine our ideas of them, it hurts because we're letting go of something. There's something of our ego that's being torn up a little bit. One author said that this, this kind of 
ego destruction is really hard and it leaves us feeling like we're in a desolate wasteland or a deep darkness. No wonder I don't want to go there. Right? No wonder we try to avoid this. But we find that life in general and following Jesus is just not safe. God's not safe. Jesus isn't safe. The Holy Spirit's not safe. Love isn't safe. And what all of these ask and invite and demand us to do is to not be safe. Transformation, changing, is not safe. This ego death or ego destruction, we would much rather stay at home, be safe, on the couch, comfy and warm, watching Avengers with our family, loving life. But life doesn't often allow us to do that. And what happens is is a belief or an understanding that we have that shapes how we see ourselves gets challenged. And then we have to navigate that. Now, I'm going to take a moment. I want to acknowledge, we already acknowledged all the moms, all the women here. I'm going to take a moment to brag on two in specific that I've had lots of experience with. One I knew was going to be here. One I didn't know was going to be here. So I'm so happy that my mom got to be here today. Um, And that's who I'll talk about first, because as a parent, and I think as moms, you know in a different way than men do what this whole process means. I think about when I was in kindergarten, and I was, uh, we were alternating days when we went to school, and I was at the bus stop on the wrong day. Now, if you know me now, you're thinking, sweet, Greg's going to find out he doesn't have to go to school, and that's going to be like, ticket out of jail for him. Um, But... My mom came up to get me at the bus stop, and I was livid. And I think it was because I had a new coat that was silver and blue, shiny. I called it my evil Knievel coat. And I was really stoked on having everybody see this. And if I remember correctly, I threw my lunchbox at you, and I kicked you, right? So this is a moment where my mom is faced with, what do I do, right? How do I? And she bribed me. She said, we'll go to McDonald's. Right, because that was her way of saying, look, you can't even think clearly. We gotta dial this down. What is your, what is your currency? Food, good, got it, right? And it was brilliant because it did. It dialed me down, got me out of that space, right? So I could experience something different. Right, now I wanna fast forward about 13 years, right? I was a senior in high school. And one of my best friends had been killed in a car wreck in the morning, but we didn't find out until later in the afternoon during kind of the last hour or so of the day. I was walking around and hugging my friends and trying to figure out what was going on, and I don't even know when my mom found out. I know there was some news about it, but it wasn't like today where you had the internet. Maybe some phone calls happened that that you found out. Um, And so my mom didn't have a lot of time either, right? I'm a three-letter sports guy, I'm a martial artist, I'm a tough guy, and I'm falling apart, not knowing what to do with this. I hadn't experienced anything like this before. And I remember coming into our house, and my mom got up and walked towards me, and all I said was, why? And she wrapped her arms around me and said, I don't know. And we sat in that moment of, I don't know. And I didn't know why my friend died, but what I did know is that my mom was there. 
and she held me and cried with me, right? Her tough, one-time-kicked-in-the-doors-of-the-house son and just wept with me, right? And so that takes it to a new level. I have a new understanding for my mom. And I see this in Angie, my wife, daily with my daughters, who I try to sit with and work on their homework with them, and I'm instantly, like, from one end of the emotional spectrum, you're wonderful to, I got to get out of this house. (laughs) And Angie sits and, and lets them rage sometimes. And where I'm instantly like, okay, nope, this is inappropriate. Can't talk to people like that. And Angie just lets it go. (sighs) Patient, long-suffering, life-giving intimacy, right? Not pushing away, not shutting down, lets it roll and takes it. And I watch my kids settle in, pull it together, even though sometimes it takes way longer than I'm comfortable with. That's what we do. That's what happens in life. These moments where you have to sit with someone who's going to push your understanding of yourself. What do I do with this kid? Just threw his lunchbox at me. What? That's not okay. How do you find the patience to say, look, I know you're upset, right? Oh, now you're kicking me. Okay. Let's go to McDonald's. Oh, right? I want to say, let's go to your room. I'm going to put you in your room. You're going to sit out right? My mom knew that wouldn't work with me in that moment, right? So we see this in life, but I want to bring attention to a couple places in scripture where we see this also. So you realize this isn't just me giving a talk about whatever's on my brain. We're going to look at the life of a guy named Peter um, because Peter shows this process better than just about anyone else in Scripture. We're going to start. This is Matthew 4.18, simple. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So that's what we know first about Peter. He's a fisherman. And I don't want to draw any sort of conclusions about what that meant he was personally or anything like that. But what it meant is he was not disciple material. Right In that culture, if you were a fisherman at that point, it's because you didn't make the cut to be a disciple. Right? So that's what we know about him. Already Jesus has, has, is going to start bringing him in. Jesus is going to change who he is from not disciple material to absolutely, and still not disciple material, but absolutely disciple. Um, next one I want to look at is Matthew 14, 22 through 32. It's quite a bit later. Uh, they've been over on one side of the lake having this discussion, and Jesus fed 5,000 people. They're heading back, and that's where we kind of catch in. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, because when you're Jesus, that's what you do when the boat's way out there. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately told them, said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. 
Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. So these aren't simple matters like, hmm, what do we have for breakfast this morning? What, what, what kind of flavoring do I want in my coffee? These are matters of defying physics, right? <laughs> what do we do with that? Like Jesus invites Peter to think differently about the physical laws that he has grown up in his whole life. He's a fisherman. He knows some things about being on the water. Let's look at the next one. This is, um, Jesus is talking with his disciples. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That seems pretty good, right? Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Wow, that's awesome. That's a pretty big affirmation from a really significant person. right? Jesus had just said, I'm going to build my church on you. You're not just, you're not that person who's not disciple material. You're the person I'm going to build my church on, and the gates of Hades won't overcome it. Wow. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life uh, for me will find it. I don't know about you, but if I just got a job review from my boss that said, you know what, you're doing awesome. In fact, you're doing so awesome, we're going to start another company, and it's going to be based on you, and nothing's going to be able to stop it because we believe in you so much to right away them saying, you are exactly the opposite of what I want you to be. In fact, you are not just the opposite of what I want you to be. I'm naming you the name that is associated with evil, who's who's the, the tongue that they speak is lies, their native tongue, that that's what I'm calling you now. From this to this, I would say, I don't think I want to be here. I don't think I want to stay. This is very confusing for me. I don't know what you're saying. One minute, I'm the one who everything's going to write on. The other minute, I'm Satan. For some reason, Peter stays. This isn't safe. He could go back to fishing and not have to wonder, am I Peter or am I Satan? 
In Matthew 26, 31 through 35, Jesus is having his last meal with his friends. It says, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again on an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is deep darkness. This is desolate wasteland for Peter. What do we do in those moments, right? And some of us might say, well, Peter, if you you hadn't encountered the rest of the story, you might say, Peter's kind of wishy-washy. He's not very committed. He says these things. He's kind of a yes man. I'm going to say what pleases this person, but I don't really believe that. One of my favorite stories later on, we're going to see Peter jump out of a boat he's fishing in and swim to shore because he realizes Jesus is on the shore while the rest of the disciples row the boat in, which someone has to be responsible to bring the boat in, which is good. But Peter just can't keep himself together because if that's Jesus on the shore, even though all these things have been discouraging at times, Jesus has life. Jesus is life, and there's something there that I can't get away from. And We might think after Jesus' resurrection that Peter's all done, right? Maybe that's where we see that Peter's finally figured everything out. Before we read this passage, though, give it a little preface. Um, Peter's uh, in this town, and this guy named Cornelius has this vision. Um, and while he's uh, having this vision, he's told, hey, your prayers have been great. Cornelius is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Um, Prayers have been great. You've been giving to to the poor. That's awesome. And so God has heard your prayers. I want you to send some people to go find this guy named Peter. Okay, while this is happening, Peter has this vision. It says about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. 
While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's Peter's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so go up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear uh, what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So Peter has this vision that is undoing what has been told to him his whole life, is that certain things are impure, certain things are unclean, and you can't eat things that are unclean. You can't eat things that God has said, you know, these are, this is the law says you can't eat these things. But he has this vision that's, that, that says, no, God says everything. You can eat it all. I've declared it clean. And so Peter goes along, goes to this house, He goes in and meets with the person and then comes out. But this is what he says. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are all aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? We see Peter allow in a vision, God, to undo years of system, years of law that said this is the way things have to be. And Peter, after a couple days journey with great courage, follows God's invitation into what is uncharted territory. Again, we see this. How, how do you develop that kind of openness? One last uh, thing that I'll just tell you about Peter because again by this point we should feel like oh he's really got it figured out but we read later on in uh, a letter written by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter hasn't figured it out and in this moment he's uh, Paul catches him and confronts him because he was uh, eating with Gentiles and Jews kind of eating with everybody right living this out but then some other people showed up and Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles Right? Ego. I don't, wanna, I don't want them to see me doing this. I, I, I don't want to have that discussion. I don't want to get into that. I don't want to. And so Paul confronts him in front of everyone. Right? And, and seemingly it gets straightened out. But it's ongoing, this process of our own ego destruction. And for something like that to come up with Peter, who seems so far down the road to have it all together, to have it come up again should both be alarming and somehow comforting to us. Now, as we close, I want to invite uh, the worship team up. I've got to realize that's me too. Um, And I want to close with a couple of things. One, uh, Jessica, who's uh, leading worship today, has had this vision for several weeks about this church and the people here and that um, there is uh, like a a hardness about us 
um, and that we may be resisting some of the things that God is inviting us into. And, 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 and Jessica, if I'm not getting this correct, feel free to jump in. Uh, but, and we talked about that, and, and, and the vision then shifted to like, but, there's a, but can we be like a sponge, right? Can, can we absorb what God is giving? Can we absorb what God is sending our direction? And can we soak it in, letting it change Right? It doesn't change the sponge completely, but it changes a lot of things about it. Right? And so, so can we move in those directions? And so as I ask the couple of questions I'm going to have up in a minute and describe one more thing, I want you to have that image in your mind. Because uh, this idea of allowing our egos to sort of be destroyed is really hard. But one uh, writer that I like a lot, uh, his name is Kent Dobson, he talks about them as hero's journeys, where there's this... There's this reality where there's like a city and a hero who lives in the city but then goes out to fight some battle or or conquer some monster or do something like that and usually either really gets beaten badly or pretty close to, to near death but comes back to the city to heal but also to bring with them. This is what I discovered while I was out. And that this is the process that heroes go out thinking they are all that. And then they encounter something that teaches them, you're not all that. You might be some of that, but you're not all that, right? And so they may survive, but they come back changed. And so I wanted to ask, what is the hero's journey that you are on? Or what is the hero's journey that is before you that maybe you haven't started? It could be something to do with parenting. It could be something to do with school, job choices, how you're interacting with your neighbors. could be trying a new thing. could be lots of different things. But what is the hero's journey set before you? Or if there's a hero's journey you're currently in. And then secondly, what steps do you need to take or what steps are you taking right now in that journey? And those questions are up there for you to write down on your, community, or your connection card. Uh, and if you put those in the wood boxes. Uh, the worship team is going to play instrumentally for just a moment uh, and give you time to write those uh, answers down. Uh, and then again, if you could put those in the wood boxes, it's a great way for us to hear how you're doing and processing things. And I want to close with one thought and then I'll pray and then we'll head into the song. Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane prays to God to, to change the situation. And he uses the word Abba, this word of intimacy. Daddy, I think today we could say parent, right? Source, whether you want to call it father or mother today, that's, that's, your, that's your decision. But Jesus is seeking from his source a different route. If there's any way for this to be different, can it please happen? And then he follows up and says, but not... My will, your will be done. And I guarantee you in that moment, there was a battle going on inside of him where he was working through this process of how far is who I am going to go with this. And it was challenged, and I think there's parts, and I think he's endured the same process we do. Who he was, his belonging, his purpose, I think we're all challenged and restructured in that moment. So that when we have Jesus on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
right? I want you to go back to when I was 18. One of my best friends had just died. And instead of the situation I described, imagine me walking into my house and it's empty. My family, who I knew loved me, some reason wasn't there and I was by myself. And I might cry in that moment, where is everyone? Where are the people? That's what Jesus did. Again, restructuring his own identity. If you're in a space today where you are being torn apart and your ego, who you think you are, feels like it's just shredded, I want you to know you're not alone. You, and even if you don't find camaraderie in one of us, which I hope you will, know that Jesus understands what you're going through and wants to be the one who sits with you and embraces you and holds you. But this process, in the end, as hard as it is, is what leads to new life and new flourishing. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll sing a song to close. Jesus, I uh, am very thankful today that we don't walk through these things alone. Um, I'm thankful for what you endured. I'm thankful for the many people you've put in my life uh, who have been there in times of need and reflected you well. Um, God, and, and, and I pray that we would realize that this, this process, this, this challenging who we are, this relearning and reshaping of who we think we are is one that brings life and brings shalom. And it's really hard, God. But I pray we would find new life on the other side of it. Um, yeah. So be with us as we endure difficult times. And be with us to celebrate life on the other side as we step courageously into these difficult things. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.